It's Ian King, founder of King Sports International and author of a number of books on training. We're having another case I huddle here with our coaches, so that we're going through questions and answers with them. So who's the first cab off the rank? We know we've got uh, some great questions for you today, so who's starting? I can. Excellent. Um, yeah, my question was about stress fractures. Um, I guess what causes them? Um, does form play a role in, in creating them or not creating them? And then what can be done about it as far as recovery goes? So I'm going to assume you're talking about stress fractures that occur in, in, in you know, relatively young people and perhaps in sports people. Is that correct? Yeah, and let's go more specific towards running. Okay. So we also need to touch on the comment about form. I just want to say this about form. You know, form is important, but form is, is overrated in its correlation with, with injury prevention. Um, and I say this, is that there's a perception that if your form is great, you're not going to get injured. Well, I wish that was true, but it's not that simple. Uh, obviously, if your form isn't good, then you are going to have a higher risk of injury, but injury prevention goes beyond form. Now, in relation to stress fractures, there's, there's two types of, of stresses I guess you could provide the, the categories into, and that is the impact stress um, or a, more of a chronic use stress, and a runner's injury could be a combination of both. Uh, there is quite, unfortunately, quite common these days, and I've, I've got to clarify that. It's not common in that it's always been this way or good, but it's quite common for a, a stress fracture to occur from repetitive repetitive use in the absence of impact, but most, um, say, runners' uh, stress fractures are related to the impact on the ground. So basically the connective tissue ranges from you know, muscle, tendon, ligament, bone, and all of it has a... A, a loading limit, and that loading limit can be measured in either in, in a single incidence or multiple incidents uh, in the absence of adequate recovery. And that that loading limit is then matched against the support limit, and the support limit is is contributed by uh, recovery, nutrition, age, hormone levels, etc., etc. So it's not just one simple equation. There are many variables that contribute to whether someone's going to get a stress fracture or not. But suffice to say, a stress fracture is an absolute you know, mark that you have failed to understand the training process. And, you know, for me one, shame on me, for me twice, shame on you, or whatever it is. I think it's the other way around. But, you know, if you as a coach get a stress fracture, you know, once, you know, I can understand it, but, you know, don't make a habit of it. Learn from it. Now, most athletes, I'm going to say quite simply, get stress fractures because they're overtrained. Now, that's very easy to say in, in a cyclical sport such as running, uh, where in theory you're not impacting with another person's body and it's, it's in a reasonably controlled environment in that, um, you know, apart from the surface of the ground changing, it's not as if you're reacting to a ball or dodging an opponent. So the stress fractures that occur in, in that environment are typically a for, for most part, a case of overtraining or under-recovering depends on how you used to define it. But the stress factors that are occurring in, in uh, either less symmetrical sports and asymmetrical sports, or um, such as tennis, or in sports that are uh, more open school, uh, less predictable, uh, including game sports like water polo, etc., they are more likely to be a result of not just overtraining but of, of muscle imbalances because the, the, the deciding factor on whether or not the stresses exceed the ability to tolerate the load or vice versa has a number of factors including the health of the joint. 
So, for example, if, and I'll take a tennis player for instance, if I'm a tennis player and my quads are, are excessively tight and I've got to increase low doses, low doses pressure on my lower back from tight hip flexors in already quad dominant activity, then the rotation of the, the spine, rotation of the hips, will be less well received by the body under these less than optimal conditions. So my muscles are going to start switching off. They're not going to be protecting the, the spine in the rotation of the sport. And that's a, for me, that's that's where you're going to have a higher incidence of stress factors that are contributed by muscle imbalances, uh, comp- compounded by obviously overtraining or under recovery, as opposed to say in running, where for the most part, if you simply reduce the volume in itself, um, you're probably going to have a higher reduction in incidence. Now, that doesn't mean that that running alone is is free from muscle imbalances, but the solution is is more volume-oriented than I'd suggest in in more multi-directional sports. So that's a starting point. The the main message for a stress fracture is that there's been a failure to match appropriate training load with appropriate recovery. Now, we all make mistakes and we all get our messages, but the, the reason why I believe that most of these messages are ignored is because for the reason that they happen in the first place is that most training decisions are made for emotional reasons, not for rational reasons. And it's great to be emotionally driven in your training, but you do need someone with a, a more of an objective perspective to balance your decision-making. So runners are classics, you know, the, the, the desire to run, the, the enjoyment of the hormone response to running, etc. It means that the resolution is less likely. And I've seen some pretty extreme cases of lower extremity conditions around the feet and the shins of runners, uh, and they're just struggling to help themselves uh, as far as reducing their volume. So there are many instances where you need to be the firmer and guiding hand and be the more objective one. So how are we travelling on that, Greg? How are we travelling with that, responding to your comment? That was, that was really good, really helpful. So there's, we can improve the recovery. We can improve the training, and the recovery is not just limited to time between training sessions. It, it might be how we manage the connective tissue, how we reduce the tension, increase the length, or return the length to, to what I call optimal. It might refer to nutrition, nutritional supplements. There's a lot of lot of factors that contribute to the recovery. In the same way, there's a lot of factors that contribute to the training load. And when those two decisions are not balanced, you know, you get a problem. But the interesting thing to note also is that you get your body gives messages. You know, we, the body doesn't lie. It's a beautiful thing. You know, someone can someone can type on a keyboard. How great they are as a coach, and how they're the world's best, and blah blah blah. But um, you know, the reality of the body is the body doesn't hasn't worked out a lot. So if your your body's telling you I'm sore here, and then we ignore it, which we typically do, and then it comes back a month later and say I'm even sore than I was last month, we ignore that, and then next month it's I'm even sore. Well, I was the, the final message is you know the bone's going to separate. You know, there'll be some some micro fracturing of the of the bone, or you know you're going to be an avulsion. You'll pull the the ligament will pull the part of the bone off the, the body of the bone, etc. In other words, the, the body just has to send stronger messages when we ignore the messages. So it's important for, for the athlete to be educated to, to, to acknowledge their messages and, and to share the messages that they're receiving the body with their coach. And it's also important there for the coach to understand how to interpret the messages. Now, unfortunately, for many athletes, they're told to stop being soft, um, you know, shut up and keep training, or, you know, go to physio and, and I don't want to know about it. Um, in fact, I, I recall one national coach um, quite clearly saying that, and I, I probably shouldn't be swearing in programs like this, so I'll just, just say, you know, and this is a national coach, a national coach, one of the highest funded programs in their country, um, saying about his relationship uh, in relation to the physio, physiotherapist saying, I have them, you fix them. Um, so that's his perception of the role. So that's a great example of a coach who's not interested in any feedback. So it's no surprise that athletes have been taught to suppress the feedback that the body gives them. Anyway, I could talk about that forever. Um, if we're travelling well with that, 
we can uh, extend that question or we'll move on to the second part. Oh, I think someone else had a, a, a related question. Greg, have a go with that. No, that, that's really good, Ian. Thanks. You're welcome. Okay, so we had an extension from that, so we're going to go to Tom. Uh, yes, my family, one of my family members had surgery last year for a syndrome called Freiberg infraction, where they told her that the second metatarsal was longer than the rest, and that caused a similar stress fracture or something. So my question is, there's a lot of talk about um, bone length discrepancies these days. What correlation does that have to injury potential versus just training? It's probably one of the it's probably one of the most uh, to date hidden or overlooked components. What I like to do is, you know, within the limits of my current knowledge, is to identify these things in advance. So there's there are a few things that we are born with, and at this stage, I haven't worked out anyone who's worked out how to change the length of, of the bone per se. Um, you know, in, in a normal in a normal environment, I'm not saying in a in, a, in certain environments, but. Um, so what I'd like to see is I'd like to see those comments made in advance, not afterwards. Because as you know, my, my, my philosophy is it's far better to, to prevent the car going off the cliff than to bring the car back up from the cliff. So I, I do believe that the genetic uh, length of our bones and the symmetry of, of bones when they're in pairings or in multiples uh, is, a, is a significant contributor to the incidence and severity of injury. I believe there's no doubt about that. My, I just wish it would be identified in advance because my attitude is, is that we're all born with injury potential. Uh, from that perspective, or, or, or you know, it might be other things. Uh, you know, it might just be poorly developed bones, um, but that's not a good enough reason for injury. I still stand by my zero injury attitude, my zero tolerance to injury attitudes. That if the injury occurs and it turns out it was a genetic contributor, well, we could have worked that out in advance if we if we had the experience and the wisdom to do so. And you know, I, like everyone else, is still learning, and I get caught out from time to time. But in the ideal world, we understand these things in advance and say, listen, you've got this condition, and if we don't address it, this is going to happen. I mean, coming back to my tennis player analogy, or, or any sport, I mean, I, 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 I give an example. I was working with um, some boxers in, in Los Angeles uh, on one occasion in the last few years, when the boxers out of um, uh, the former Soviet Union, and you know, the... They couldn't straighten their fingers, and, and they couldn't straighten their palm, and they couldn't straighten their elbow. I mean, I could keep going, and, and that's not that's what has to do with the, the country of origin. This is this is symptomatic of all sports when you get to understand the exchange of adaptation to to the sport. And the sport doesn't do good things to our body in the most instances. We've got to learn how to counter it. So, you know, I can tell you that they were going to have injuries at the hand, they're going to have injuries at the wrist, they're going to have injuries at the elbow, the shoulder, they're going to have rotational injuries at the trunk sooner or later. You, you can't afford to ignore. Uh, signs of injury and the imbalances you know, right to left or as I said the asymmetry of bone length or asymmetry in, in a multiple bone situation that is a red flag there is potential for that and so yes um, I I agree that with the, the possibilities of that I'm fully fully behind that that is a, a major contributor that we aren't aware of it's something I'd like to, to speak about more on in future but it's such a high level topic because you know we're at a stage in the world where people are still multi doing excessive uh, quad dominant activities. They haven't understand the, the ratio between quad dominant hip dominant. Uh, I'm talking about my definition of quad dominant hip dominant that I released in the 1990s and established first in the 1980s. I'm not talking about the you know those who hijacked the functional movement and wrote multiple books on the subject who don't, weren't even doing it when they started teaching it, so they didn't understand it. Uh, and then how can people learn from that? So I'm talking about the original intent. So if people haven't understood how to prevent basic muscle imbalances around the major joints of the body, 
I, I think it's probably a bit premature for us to run too much educational content on, you know, the, the, uh, the length differences in, in bones, etc. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's a real a variable, Tom. It's a high-level variable, and I'm glad you're getting exposure to it. If there's anything more specific you want me to touch on, uh, extend on that. Um, no, I think you answered the question. So the, the next step is to deal with it. Uh, and, and, and typically the way we deal things you know, after injury is no different than the way we would have dealt with them uh, to prevent injury in, in many regards. I mean, uh, there's two parts of the of return from injury. One is the removal of the pain, uh, which means identifying the stimulus, the cause of it in the first place, to actually remove it. And the second thing is to progressively return the person to sport. Um, so you know, admittedly, that doesn't occur in the pre uh, the pre-injury state, but the understanding what it takes to reverse or uh, unfold the potential threat of the injury is the same. Uh, and so, you know, you, you're looking at a symptomatic joint, it should be pretty easy to work out some of the things that you can do to reverse that condition and also make any recommendations about management. Because when I identify these in, in uh, genetic condi conditions in athletes that have in potential for injury incidents, I like to tell them pretty early on, but I also like to tell them in an optimistic way that we can deal with this. But it's good to know it in advance. Okay, so we've had two um, stress-related discussions. If there is any other questions in the huddle here, we can deal with that. I have a question um, regarding strokes. It seems like the community more in the um, um, occurrence. So my question is, it is a, a growing concern in the same way that many health conditions are increasing in, in incidence, uh, heart conditions, you know, diabetes, and you know, the, the major, you know, the top seven killers that don't really need to be there to some extent. Uh, they are on the rise because the health of the world is declining, which is which is interesting, and, and considering the educational knowledge of people is high in terms of. You know, every man and his dogs heard all about paleo diets and, and all these other, you know, sugar's bad. Everybody knows this stuff, and, and yet we, I suggest the statistics are heading in the wrong direction. So the stroke offers a, a challenge that has primarily two parts, and that's that's the brain and the body, and obviously they are connected. It does open up the door for a discussion on neural plasticity, which is really a growing topic of interest. Uh, and then also my my specialty, which is the area of uh, musculoskeletal uh, rehabilitation. So I will, for the most part, address from the, the musculoskeletal perspective. And we're entering an era where the world doesn't really understand or accept the possibilities. You know, there's a the, attitude the, the that this can't be done. You, know, you can't do that, or you know that, that can't happen. Um, you know, there was a time when you know we believed that the nerves couldn't regenerate, etc. You know, we, we've we've moved on a lot, but there's still a lot of limiting beliefs about what's possible, and I'm very optimistic about what the body's power to adapt is. So I take a, a very uh, optimistic but a, a long-term approach to returning function in, in the musculoskeletal system, which includes obviously the nerve function, in a post-stroke uh, person. I won't say patient because you know I'm, I'm not a, a, in the medical field. By the time we get them, hopefully they're they've um, they're out of that that uh, area. So. For me, the approach is no different than the way we prevent limitations in all athletes. See, this is what happens, and this is something that people they, they haven't worked out yet. They haven't, they haven't grasped this concept. They, they take responsibility for my failings in teaching today. Personally, talked in the in the in the 90s about injury prevention and, and performance enhancement as two separate items, and they're not, because if 
I am failing to prevent an injury, the early stages of the injury is not an injury, and people don't even know they've got it. They've got an impairment of function that they're not even aware of. That's the first stage of, of an injury potential. And then it becomes a, at a level where they become aware of it, and then it becomes debilitating in some regard. But if we have optimal training and we're improving the function of, of the musculoskeletal system, then we are doing exactly what I want to do in the way I address my strokes. But this is what happens. Most training, the way it's conducted globally and has been since I started studying this in the 70s, most decrease function of the human body. Most training shuts down the, the connectivity from uh, muscle to muscles, from sheath to sheath, connective tissue to connective tissue, and from nerves onwards. What we're doing, and it's a big subject, and I understand I'm trying to do it very quickly, is most training is is contracting the functionality of the body. The range is being reduced, the length of the connective tissue is being reduced, the tension is being raised, the nerve transmission is being reduced, the subconscious pain levels are being increased. The whole result is that there's an inhibition in function. And this inhibition in function is not recognised until there's a major injury. And, and admittedly, it's hard to recognise to most people until they even get a message in the body saying, oh, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, which they usually ignore anyway. So we've got this inhibition in function occurring. Now, in gross motor terms, someone might actually be getting stronger in terms of oh, they can displace more load in the gym you know, from point A to point B, irrespective of technique and whether it transfers, they think I'm getting stronger, when in actual fact their function is being inhibited. Now, I'm seeing this phenomenon and this epidemic being applied to, to every child that dares, unfortunately, to, to get exposed to a vertical commas strength addition coach who takes them to the gym and puts load on them, and, or, or any coach who, who, who smacks them around the field in whatever sport they're doing, that we are damaging function of human bodies from the minute sports coaches and physical coaches get their hands on them. So the approach that I take is to enhance the function of every joint in a way that people say, well, that's not specific to the sport. You know, people will try and tell you, well, I'm a marathon runner. Why would I need to be able to do that level of flexibility? That You know, this such a low level of understanding that if you inhibit the muscle function, you are getting a decrement of performance at joint angles that you're not even aware of. And again, that's another Pandora's box I don't want to open. So the approach I'm going to take to rehabilitating the stroke is no different than the approach I'm going to take to preventing injuries. I want to optimise joint, joint gap. I want to optimise joint uh, connective tissue length. I want to optimise connective tissue tension. I want to enhance and support nerve transmission through the body, through the sheaths, and as far through the body from the head to the toe as, as much as I can and I want to see an improved level of function. Now, all of this is not only dependent upon the, the, the ability the, for any brain damage to be reversed, but it is dependent upon any connective tissue damage to be reversed. And I can tell you this now, every athlete walking this planet has connective tissue damage. When I talk about connective tissue, I'm talking about musculoskeletal damage because of the poor way they've been trained. We can enhance their performance simply by reversing the condition they're in. It's not about making them bigger, stronger, faster. It's about reversing the, the inhibition of functions that's occurring in every joint throughout their body. So the, the approach we're going to take with strokes is no different than the approach we're going to take with athletes. We've just got a compounding factor of potential brain damage. How's that, Robert? That's fantastic. Thank you. That's excellent. Now, one of the biggest limiting factors I find working with strokes, and unfortunately I've had a, a number of clients uh, that I've worked with at the elite level in sport, in the 80s and 90s, I've seen them suffer um, strokes later in life. 
Um, you know, I haven't I can't comment on their lifestyle because I haven't had contact with them for the two or three decades between when I was training them at the peak of their sporting abilities and their strokes. Uh, but I have had the opportunity to to meet with one or two of them and to have some contribution, some input into them. The biggest limiting factor I find is the expectation of return. If a stroke, if a, and I use the word victim, if a stroke victim, I mean, if somebody suffered a stroke or their support group believe that that their function will always be inhibited, their function will always be inhibited. You know, if you're not surrounded by a group with optimism, then I'm pessimistic for you. So it's a tough battle to go with if you're surrounded by people with with less expectations than what's possible. And I believe the field of musculoskeletal rehabilitation is, is so underdone, um, generally speaking, but that's another story for another day. Appreciate those questions. If there's any final questions, otherwise we'll wrap. So we've had some uh, pretty powerful topics here. Uh, I've gone fast. I've opened up a lot of lot of topics. I understand that. This is what we do, and this is uh, the sort of and the attitude we have towards what's possible with the body, and um, you know our viewpoints about optimal. It might be a little bit different than what you've heard, but. As I say, if we're doing what everyone else is doing, how can we expect to get a superior result? Uh, and that's just a competitive nature in me coming out. So I appreciate everybody. Uh, I'm going to assume there's no final questions. I'm just going to pause for three seconds just to check. Excellent. So another great chat. We'll wrap it at that. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff.